Welcome, everyone. You're in for a brand new episode of HCI's special edition podcast series, Nine to Thrive Deep Dive, in this next hour. We're going to spend a little bit more time discussing a critical problem or notable trend in strategic HR. My name is Aubrey Witte, and I'm thrilled to be your host today. I encourage you to grab your cup of coffee or tea and put on your thinking cap as we venture into this land of building effective teams with thought leader and practitioner, Bennett Bratt. Bennett has more than 20 years experience in leadership roles at organizations that include T-Mobile, Sun Microsystems, and Ford Motor Company, among others. But today, he is the principal and founder of the Team Effectiveness Project, and it's his mission to unlock the true power of teams, leaders, and communities. His approach helps teams demystify their experiences and take positive ownership for their current situation and create an inclusive path forward to success. So Bennett, thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to have you. Aubrey, a pleasure. It's, uh, it's great to be with you too. Excellent. So I like to start off with kind of some broad-based questions just to get a little bit more context of your background. So if you can give me um, some commentary about why is this topic of teams so important to you? What from your experiences kind of drives this area of interest? Yeah, wonderful. Um, I, I think it's really important for a number of reasons. And I'll, and I'll start there. The first is that um, having worked in large organizations and small and talent management functions and organization development for quite some time, what I've come to realize is that teams and their effectiveness, I think, are one of the most valuable but least leveraged value drivers in contemporary organizations. When you look at everything we pay attention to in HR and organizations, uh, I think there are so many wonderful focus areas we dive into. And I think we skip teams so often. And I find that in real life, teams drive huge amounts of value or subtract huge amounts of value. And I think it's for a couple of reasons. One is that teams seem to lie in this weird zone between our two primary units of analysis, between the individual, individual employee with their performance and their engagement and organizations and functions, the larger elements. Teams lie somewhere in between, and I think we quite often don't know what to do with them. They're odd ducks. The other reason is when we look at the solution sets we often bring to organizations, it tends to be training or coaching to the primary ways we address issues. And training doesn't work well for teams, actually. Teams need coaching, and team coaching is different than executive coaching. So when I think we look at organizations and say, wow, there's teams, it's hard for us to know what to do with them. It becomes a little bit of dark matter inside of organizations. But I think there's a more profound reason why I'm so passionate about this topic. In my experience, it's been teams are such a huge part of the context of everyday life inside of organizations. Teams are the place where we often find meaning, connection, relationship, feedback, performance, development. It's in these small social ecosystems that some of the most important things happen in organizations. And I think just for that reason, they're worth attending to and attending to well. Mm -hmm. um, I became oddly passionate about this a long time ago, 30-some years ago when I was in the Navy. I, I had dropped out of college and joined the Navy, and I was in boot camp. Mm -hmm. And um, I was the, the recruit who was the leader of my company. And, and at the end of the whole boot camp, we had this huge 
competition, sports competition, uh, physical competition among all the different companies at the boot camp at that time. And there was a final event where we needed to have a one and a half mile run as a race. And other people just like me who were the recruit leaders in our companies needed to make sure that our teams, our, our companies got the best time possible. And the instructions were clear. Your time ends when you finish getting your company across the line. Well, everybody was primed to go fast. Everybody knew that they should be jackrabbits and run just as fast as they could. But what struck me was that our time isn't noted and logged until the last member crosses the line. And I realized we had a couple of folks in our company who running was not their strength. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, we had all run together every day, and I'd seen these guys lag way behind. And they became the way that our team was going to succeed. And so as we took off on this run at boot camp, I gathered a couple of really positive, supportive guys with me. And I said, Remember, you look at those two guys, Smith and Jones. We're going to go put our arms around them and make sure these guys get across. Everybody else will run. I'm not worried about the other 68 people. But these two people, these are the ones we have to get across. So why don't the four of us really positively encourage these guys across the line? If we stick together, if we get these two across the line as fast as we can, this whole team, this whole company will win. Mm-hmm. And it worked. And we had the fastest time. And it, there was a lesson in there somewhere about the power of collective action and the power of seeing what everybody brings from their unique diversity um, and the power of helping us hold each other accountable. Uh, And so since then, throughout my career, I've done a lot of things in teams, worked in teams, coached teams, developed team methodologies, and it's just become a singular passion in my life now. Yeah, I think that that there's some really good points that you raised there. And I like this idea that you know, teams are sort of taken for granted, I think, because you do have to put on a different lens when you're looking at them because you're not dealing with the individual and you're not dealing with the organizational outcome. You're really dealing with this melding of different skills and different talents. And it's almost like a recipe, right? And there are different ingredients that go into them. And, you know, your chicken cordon bleu may be just as fantastic as your beef stroganoff, but they're different, right? Like they just function in a different way and have different skills that they bring to the table. Yes, absolutely. I love the the use of the word lens. Um, that's something we've been talking quite a bit lately. Is, um, yeah, I think as we skip over teams, it's simply because we can't see them. If we could magically put on a set of goggles and and actually see teams, not org charts on a org chart, you know, boxes type of thing. Sometimes those are teams, and sometimes they're not. But if we in the network analysis work. Um, focus that's on right now is really important to help us see these small social ecosystems. And when we look inside of there, yes, there's just a wonderful kaleidoscope of strengths, skills, abilities, aspirations, um, constraints, things that get in our way, uh, climates, cultures. And in a systems thinking point of view, it takes a pretty special pair of goggles to be able to see a team. Here's the thing. They don't all have to be like each other. And in fact, in no way can they all be like each other. Mm -hmm. Um, They're radically individual little entities. Um, Just like you are and I am, we're messy humans who are trying to get through the world and be a little bit better tomorrow than we are today. When you take 10 of us and put us together, we're 10 messy humans trying to get through the world and accomplish usually really big objectives, usually with scarce resources and pressures and yeah the the fascinating 
little social ecosystems that I think deserve a lot more of our attention if we can just see them. Yeah. So what you're saying is we're all odd ducks. So we need to learn how to function together. <laughs> well, like I'm an odd duck. I'm not going to say anything about you. But uh, I would wear that. Yeah. Badge. I mean, in, in, yeah. Yeah. Me too. You know, when we stick us all together, um, there is no roadmap. There is no. I think we're all so intrigued with simple answers, and I'm a big fan of simplicity, but the complexity of what goes on inside of teams is astounding. Even mm -hmm. if you took just one thing, just take one element like trust, quite often trust is a big thing that comes up in teams. And if we had a team of 10 people sitting around a table and we said, is there enough trust in this team based on your own subjective threshold for how much trust is enough? Is there enough? I, I, I bet you my next paycheck, four people will say yes, three people will say no, and three people will say, why in the world are we wasting our time talking about trust? It's not mm -hmm. important. And that kind of um, radical subjectivity and individualization not only exists for trust, but it also exists for things like, hey, how's our conflict resolution on this team? Mm -hmm. We'll have some people who say it's great, some who say it's no good at all. And some people will say, conflict? Does that happen in this team? And um, for across a wide array of dimensions, we have this subjectivity that we all bring. It's part of our diversity. It's part of our wonderful diversity that you and I are different. And you and I might have different ideas of how much trust is enough or how much shared vision is enough. And so... The, the complexity comes in embracing that diversity and subjectivity mm -hmm. um, and doing it in a way that doesn't overwhelm us, but in fact stimulates us and helps us find the signal from the noise, helps us find the most important thing a single team can work on at any given time. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I really like the, the phrasing of saying, thinking of teams not as these separate isolated entities, but rather as parts of kind of mini social ecosystems, or the, I like the phrase kaleidoscope that you use, where, you know, there can be people that exist or function on multiple different teams, because these teams are net, not set in stone, right? They're not, um, they don't exist in the long term, <laughs> without any um, influence from other forces. So I have some questions about that. How do you think is a general rule that the need for teams in the workplace has changed in recent years? Do you think that there are more teams or fewer teams or, you know, what's the work that they're actually tasked with and what things do they need to accomplish? Yeah, that's a fascinating question. Um, and it's fascinating for a couple of reasons. One is because nobody actually counts the number of teams. Um, in fact, I've called up some organizations that, that do research on organizations. And I've said, um, yeah, well, I'm curious about this company. Um, can you tell me how many teams they have? And you, know, you and I both know that that's a nonsense question. Nobody keeps track of the number of teams. Uh, and in fact, sometimes we even struggle with a common definition of what is a team versus a work group or a committee or a board. So we have definitional problems we have to wade through when we get to the question. For about 10 years, we've been asking um, groups we work with, uh, how many teams are you on? And I think I'll just kind of ambush you with that question, Aubrey. Mm. Um, when you think about work, um, I'm imagining you're perhaps on a team or more than one. Mm -hmm. And then also when you go home, 
you may be on some teams either, you know, at uh, the homeowners association or the condo board or a sports team or the synagogue or the mosque or the church or anything. When you put all of those together, how many teams do you think you're on? Hmm, that's a good question. I think that if I think about work alone, there are probably five teams that kind of come to mind right off the bat. And when I think about my personal life, there are probably another five or six teams. But you're right, depending on what part of my life I'm looking at, there's certainly more than one everywhere I look. So yeah, yeah. it's a lot. I would, I would pretty... say it's in the double digits. <laughs> yeah. That's a, and so we've been keeping track of this data for some time, and the average answer we get is nine. That between work and home, people, uh, let's just say kind of people in the workforce today. That's um, not true for all times and all places. I think probably Uber drivers are not on many teams if they're uh, individual contractors, for example. But I, we hear this answer a lot, seven, eight, nine, eleven. And I don't think it's always been that way. I think somewhere in contemporary society, we've decided that inclusion is a good thing, shared responsibility is a good thing, um, and therefore, let's put people on teams, especially if we have crises or critical issues or we need cross-functional inputs. Let's form a team. I, I don't know if, I've, if I can recall an instance where we said, Oh, just give that to one person and let them go do that all by themselves. Maybe it happens. So the other data point we often track is how many teams do we think exists in contemporary organizations? And some things I've read in research and, and from my own study, it generally it seems like there's a team for every seven employees, roughly. And I know some organizations make a different assumption that there's a team for every four employees which is an interesting ratio. But if you consider an organization that might have 7,000 employees, is it possible they have 1,000 teams? And I would say, yes, it is. Um, I, uh, highly, highly likely. And so is this more than before? I don't know. I don't think I'm, I'm qualified to answer that question. I think what we are is becoming more and more reliant on teams. Mm -hmm. um, if you go to a contemporary worship service at a local megachurch, you'll hear about the praise team and the child care team and the worship team. If you go to a middle school down the street from you or a junior high, you'll hear about a science teacher putting kids into work teams. Uh, I recently heard about uh, a friend of mine has a child in preschool. Um, so this is like the four-year-olds, and they are actually putting kids in teams and trying to teach them team skills. So I don't know if it was this way for my parents or grandparents. I don't think it was, um, but it just seems to be blossoming, emerging uh, more than ever. Yeah. You know, I, I think in some ways it can be a little overwhelming when you, you know, when you do that analysis, <laughs> you know, your question about how many teams are you a part of, it is a lot. Um but I also think that it's maybe a sign of very positive things because to me it demonstrates that we care a lot more about collaboration and we recognize that unilateral decisions and unilateral opinions are not necessarily the best way to function. Um, so kind of input from other people and recognizing and being cognizant that great ideas can come from a wealth of different and diverse perspectives to me is a really positive thing. But now we're sort of faced with this question of if this is the new reality, then 
how do we make sense of it? How do we navigate it in a way where teams are are not that afterthought or not that dark matter, um, but we can kind of proactively see them for what they are and help them um, succeed in the best ways that they can. Yeah, exactly. Um, we often ask a follow-up question after we say, how many teams are you on? And you said double digits, and I think that's true. We actually at one point had somebody say 29 teams. It was a very busy CFO at a large company. And I actually believe that to be true. Um, but we ask a follow-up question. We say, okay, of those teams you're on, what percentage would you rate as effective or highly effective? And now I'm not going to ask you to answer that question because um, <laughs> because uh, because that could just be between you and me. But um, can you guess? Can you guess what percentage people might say of their teams they would rate as effective or highly effective? Hmm, that's a great question. Um, not that I'm referencing my own experience here, but I'm going to say twenty twenty five percent a quarter. <laughs> yeah, that's spot on. But um, people quite often, first of all, when I ask the question, I'll hear some sighs, like, <laughs> um, you know, and it's like the, the depressing reality sets in. But when we ask a number of people, quite often they'll come through to an answer around 20%. And I just find this astounding because, um, okay, so 20% of our teams are effective at what they do, effective in how they are, and effective in what they do and what they accomplish. And I, I just think, like, what else in our life do we possibly put up with only being effective 20% of the time? Mm -hmm. If my car started only 20% of the time or my cell phone connected to calls only 20% of the time or if I asked the waiter to bring me a glass of water and it only happened 20% of the time, you know, we couldn't imagine living in society. Mm -hmm. But yet somehow with this unit of analysis called a team or a work group or a small social ecosystem, we're somehow okay with this fact that 20% is all right. And I just don't, I, I don't think any of us actually think that's all right. Mm -hmm. um, the the, the add-on difficulty is then we ask a third question. What percentage of teams get help? Do they either get a coach or a book or support from HR, anything? Um, and then usually the answer is like close to zero, less than 5%. Mm. So, um, yeah, we've set ourselves up into a world where we've organized our productive activity this way. It is a good thing. We are including people. We're hearing many voices. We're collaborating. Now I think we need to do some work on the mechanics and the actual effectiveness of these teams and what we're asking them to do. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. Um, so two things. One, I feel like I need to disclose that HCI has done research on teams a few years ago, and we found that only 23% believe their teams were very effective. So I might have been slightly biased yeah. in my response. <laughs> um, but yeah, it leads really into my next question, which is, you know, what are the some of some of the biggest mistakes or the assumptions that you think people are making about teams within organizations? And then what can HR practitioners do to help kind of rewrite that narrative? I don't know if anybody's making mistakes. I think everybody's acting rationally. Um, I guess the perspective I would offer is this. Is if we can slow down for just a moment and begin to see our teams, we then have an opportunity to own our team, own the current state, own the future state, and then work on it in really smart ways. And if you're probably, you're not uh, scratching this down on a piece of paper, but if you did, you would see an acronym, S-N-O-W, SNOW. 
And, and we use this a lot in our work um, because I think our first job as professionals is to help people see their teams, to actually see what's going on. And if we can, help them name what are the key strengths and weaknesses of this team. And I want to, you know, I prefer a very balanced look. Like, hey, as an individual, as an odd duck, I have certainly some strengths and absolutely some weaknesses. And if I can name them, I now have a chance to own them and then work on them. So I think if there's a way to change the narrative, it's a way to change what we see um, and to see things in their fullness. Um, I think if, as HR professionals, if we, if we took a moment every day to ask our clients, um, hey, how's your team? Hey, what's going on with the team? Uh, how's your, how are your team members feeling? Hey, are you, are you hitting all your goals as a team? If we just asked those questions, and started to bring the team into our focus of awareness and then listened really closely for the answer and followed up with a second question. Is there anything I can do? Um, you know, to, I think team leadership is a very lonely job, frankly, and, and offering support is the way to change the narrative in the micro in the, in the every instance where there's a team, if we have 7,000 employees and there's a thousand teams, um, Maybe we could begin to focus on a handful or a dozen um, and shift the narrative into claiming that locus of control, claiming the team as a place where we can do more. And people get more out of it and organizations will get more out of it. I think it's, we, shift the, we shift the narrative every day in every small way. Um, I don't think they're big campaigns. I think they're small campaigns mm -hmm. uh, to, to improve the daily lives of people. Well, just your recommendation of, you know, using that language team, how's your team doing? What are your team members working on? It sort of subtly reinforces that these decisions that you're tasked with as a, as a business, these are, um, they are collaborative efforts. They do encompass several different people's areas of expertise and perspectives. And so you need to think about those in a holistic way and less about, you know, this person has done this or that person has done that. Um, so to the original point that you made, in order to focus on teams as a metric, you have to recognize teams as a metric and actually talk about them and communicate them about them in that way. Yeah, and, and contemporary organizations aren't really set up for this. Um, I, maybe in my fantasy, we as, as organizations move into this world more. But when we think about things like performance, performance management systems, um, when we think about compensation systems, you know, how are people being rewarded through bonuses, variable comp? These are all highly individual conversations. They're also organizational conversations, but they're individual. And I think it's um, maybe we haven't found the right science yet or the right tools to employ to have people think about, yes, you do contribute individually and you're embedded in some primary teams and those teams' accomplishments are vital to the organization. So how could we note, reward, improve the performance of a team? How could we note, reward, improve the compensation of a team? Um, these are questions that I think some forward-looking organizations play with or struggle with. Um, and it is in some way uncharted territory. We don't have really good answers to some of that stuff yet. But yeah, it does. Um, when we put on those goggles, those lenses, we begin to see the, the world of our organizations through the lens of teams. 
um, things begin to pop out at us, topics like that. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a really nice lead into my next question, um, which is when you think about how teams are structured and you know what characteristics of every odd duck need to be counted and which are important, um, what do you think is most effective? And I know that you have a model that speaks to some of these things. Yeah. Yeah. To the, to the question of structure, like what's the right structure for a team? Um, uh, I, I can only answer the, the structure that fits the purpose of the team in this environment. So, um, you know, is it a self-directed work team or a, you know, a cross-functional team or a project team or a agile team or a scrum or something? Um, the, the most important question is, do we have a really good fit between the team and its structure and processes and what the environment is demanding of this team. Um, And so a lot of times we create problems for teams when we say, oh yeah, just take the structure. It it needs to be this way without really asking ourselves, is that structure the right fit for the purpose of this team? Um, How do we think about them? Yes, um, we have a framework for thinking about this and it's, uh, you can find it at uh, teamelements.com. But we really try to bring in this systems thinking approach, which we've touched on a little bit. Um, The things that go on inside of you when you're on your 11 teams, Aubrey, Mm -hmm. are things like, do I feel safe with these people? Do Do I have a sense of psychological safety when I'm sitting around the table with these people? Do I believe I can trust them? Am I going to act in a way that's open? Uh, do I know these people? And do they know me? This is what we call the quality of conversation, but it's like the conversation going on inside of you. Um, what are you f- feeling and thinking and believing and acting when you're with these people? And it's completely an internal conversation. But it so incredibly impacts the second set of things we look at, which are the big things that help a team relate to each other and form a sense of identity. These are things like behavioral norms that we all agree to, rules of the road, or a shared vision for the future, or a mutual commitment to the core purpose of the team and an ability to resolve conflict. Those things going on inside of you, like do I feel safe and can I trust and like be open, impact these other things like conflict resolution, our shared vision, our behavioral norms. We look at a third group of items around the quality of work we do together every day, the proof points, the touch points, the moments of truth when the team has to get stuff done, make decisions, solve problems. Do they have clear responsibilities? Um, Are they able to hold each other accountable when they do their daily work? And you can see how the previous eight things like, do I trust you? And are we able to resolve conflict? Just two examples could impact things like, Mm -hmm. are we able to make decisions and solve problems? But in the end, we have to also look through a lens about the outcomes the team is going after. We sign up to deliver goals. We have to deliver them. We have to create certain impacts in our world. And ideally, we get some rewards out of all of this work. And so in the systems thinking approach of these 16 what we call team elements, um, they're interrelated. And many times within any given team, because people are subjective, People completely disagree about what's a core strength in this team and what's a core weakness in this team. And so the approach we take is to help teams have that conversation through data, through dialogue, and really find insights about this unique team's key strengths and weaknesses that allow us to accomplish our ends. Um, And so we we have methods and processes and tools and data 
that help teams go through this and actually unlock their unique drivers for their unique team at this place in time. Uh, and we do that. Uh, we do it all the time with teams all over the place. And it's a, be- it's a beautiful thing to watch a team go through this process. This remember snow when a team can finally see itself in kind of all of its glory and all of its misery and all of the things driving it crazy. When it can finally name what's going on, you know what? We have real key strengths around decision-making and problem-solving and goal achievement, but also name the things that aren't going so well. And yet we also really struggle with mutual accountability and then own it, own that this is our team and this is how we're going to move forward and work on it. Um, and watch them see their results improve. That's a it's a beautiful thing. To, that's why the work is so valuable for me and why I have such a passion around it because to see client teams make that improvement um, and find their way through, uh, it's it's just a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm sure it's very rewarding to see that. And so I'm curious if you, if you kind of advocate for a team development approach. You talked about having coaches accessible to teams to help them um, benefit or understand a little bit more about their strengths and weaknesses. Do you feel like the team is a unit within an organization that should warrant kind of the same investment that individuals sometimes get? Like our that we talk about high potentials who get kind of customized um, development paths. Do you think that teams should be treated similarly? At least as much. I mean, it'd be a fine world if there was parity between the dollars we invested in high potentials or you know, executives in certain roles and their teams. And here's why. Um, I used to do some executive coaching. I have a lot of colleagues and friends who do. And it is wonderful work to, say, work with uh, 10 high potentials and help them become um, future executives who are, who are growing their capabilities. Or work with an executive who perhaps has some rough spots, some flat sides, some things they're just not that good at that are getting in the way. But when you work with an individual and then you go back and put them inside an intact team, quite often what the work you do with an individual is really hard to translate inside an intact team. Um, And so helping that system shift together can accentuate the coaching of an individual while it moves the whole team forward. So, um, you know, if uh, let's say the, the, the leader's struggling with decision making, fair enough, a lot of us do. But the leader also wants the team involved in decision making. Great. I think team members often want that. How does that happen? How can we coach the leader and the team simultaneously to get really good at um, knowing how the decision's being made, what the authority levels are? what style we're going to use, that a decision's actually been made, and that we're all going to go live that together. If we just take the executive aside and do that work, it's possible, but the team's in the dark about what the leader's actually trying to do. If we can coach intact systems, that work um, gains a whole lot of momentum, and the team actually becomes an integrated unit. As, As they find the wisdom inside of them, themselves, as an intact unit, to go make this decision-making happen. The leader is a collaborative member, is, is, plays a special role, um, but also we're moving the whole system together. And that, it, with its decision-making or accountability, goal achievement, shared vision, it doesn't matter. Coaching teams, um, helping them find their way is fully possible. And I think in many ways, 
as equal a wise investment as the dollars we might put behind an individual coach Mm -hmm. for an individual executive. Yeah, I like the way that you phrased it, that it's almost like, um, I wouldn't say maybe a bigger bang for your buck, but equally as important because you can't give someone this whole set of new skills and expect them to be able to implement and use those skills if the place that they are moving into or the team that they are moving into isn't ready to accept it or understand it or actually kind of roll with some of those changes. So working on them simultaneously or in that um, as their own component makes more sense to me. Yeah, you know, I think particularly in Western societies, but it's it's kind of become a global phenomenon. So much of what we look at when we look at leaders, and I won't say executives, I'll just say leaders, is, is so much revolves around the cult of personality and the strong individual leader. Um, and we can read those articles in popular magazines. And, and I don't, I'm not here to denigrate any of that. Um, I think what I'd love to see is the world also incorporate the key role of the leader is to help the team. It's not so much to be the next Steve Jobs of your particular software company um, or hardware company or the next Jack Ma or somebody. It's this team. When you look at this team, can you see your team? Can you see your team members and the strengths and weaknesses they're bringing? Can you see the dynamic between people? As a leader, can you create psychological trust by demonstrating some levels of transparency and authenticity and vulnerability? If you can do a little bit of that and and prime the pump of, of psychological safety, people will believe that this is a team they can trust. And if they can trust this group of people, my goodness, you know, we, we unlock so many things that aren't available to us. Mm-hmm. We unlock openness and knowledge of each other and the ability to resolve conflict. That I'd love to see us talk about leaders and coach leaders in terms of the nature of their interactions with their teams. Um, I, I think it's a, a gap in how we approach what we think as the biggest leverage points inside an organization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great reminder. Well, and and that does kind of turn, uh, I have one question for you around that need for leadership on teams. Do you think that there is such a thing? Have you witnessed such a thing as a very effective leaderless team? Or do you feel like that role of someone to sit in the, you know, the driver's seat, if you will, on a team is necessary? Oh, that feels like a false choice to me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know, here's what I think. I think Team leadership is is a role that is played, and I think by default, what we do is we take the skills of a, of team leadership and we embody them in a person, and we call that person a manager, or a supervisor, or a director, or something, mm-hmm. and we say that's your team leader. If we took that role of team leader and deconstructed it into critical components of things that must be done. Or how can decision-making happen here? Or how can accountability happen? Or how can conflict resolution happen in the way that we're all responsible for our pieces of it? And how can we create the right states of being in the team? Things like trust, openness, knowledge of each other. I think if we, if we think of those things as discrete elements that can be built we have less of a need for a single person to sit there and say, I'm the leader. I'm the embodiment mm. of, of these things. 
convert, you know, on, conversely, if we can say, we all share a responsibility to build trust. We all share the responsibility to create psychological safety in this team or whatever that is. Um, it becomes less important that the leader have to show up with everything on her shoulders or everything on his back. And when we work with teams and leaders, sometimes we find this, like the leader just relaxes when they finally realize there's a way for us to have a conversation together as a team. It doesn't put the entire thing on them. And so I think that there's degrees of options on a continuum here. Um, and, and again, it's, it has to be right for the team. So, um, you know, a team in a nuclear power plant versus a military team versus a team of lifeguards in San Diego versus a team of Wall Street bankers may have very, very different needs for these things. They don't, I, I think there's an illusion that they all somehow need to become self-directed work teams, and it's just not the case. It, it needs to be the right fit, that that team is picking the right um, structure and leadership mechanisms and the right elements that will drive their effectiveness. That's a great point. And I, I like what you said about, um, you know, when leaders feel they kind of adopt a servant leadership perspective. And if, you know, building trust becomes an objective for everyone who sits on that team, that kind of takes some of the pressure off to say, you know, we treat leadership as a cult of personality or as this one person is kind of the um, command and control structure. So it makes it better for everyone, but I think that it's also a shift and it's an evolution on how we've thought about leadership for a long time too. Yeah, great point. I agree. These these things are all evolving. They're, they're evolving in society and sometimes um, admittedly for the better and sometimes it seems like we're going backwards at times. Right. Um, but these are the options. When we finally can see the team and name it and own what's going on, we can work any of these things in any direction. Mm -hmm. So my next question is probably more specific to kind of the, the business and the industrial way that people work today. But in our research, we found that more than 50% of our survey respondents work in virtual teams at least 50% of the time. So this idea that either one or more people on the team in which you work or one of the teams in which you work is not located with you. And I think that um, that presents its own set of benefits and challenges but I'm curious if everything that we've talked about thus far, do you think that it, it remains true for virtual or teams that have remote um, team members on them as well? Or is it kind of specific to the localized, um, geographically similar teams? That's a great point. I think, I think virtual teams or globally distributed teams um, are in some ways exactly like the, the, the local team members all sitting around one table. And in some ways, they're mentally different. Um, in the similarity column, look, we're all humans. We're all whatever, odd ducks. We're all messy. We're all coming together. Um, and we generally have the same needs for esteem, for you know the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We can frame it any way we want. But we all share these needs. And it doesn't matter if you're a developer in Chennai or you're a salesperson in Paris. Um, you, we're all working these things together simultaneously. Um, but there are differences. And I think cross-functional global teams in particular deal with cultural differences and language and time zone and technology and all sorts of things that become additional stressors for teams. Um, and so in my mind, uh, especially because as your research notes, the vast increase in these types of 
team situations, these team milieus, we have to get really good at this. We have to get much, much, much better at how we bridge these conversations across time zones. Um, and yet these teams also need to be effective. We've, we've worked with client teams that are globally distributed sales teams where they've lost really large accounts purely because the handoffs inside of a team did not go as needed. And those poor handoffs meant that the customer eventually abandoned the account and left, left the fold. And, and the business impacts of these global teams not working well together is, is clear. Yeah, that's a great point. And I didn't really think about um, the fact that you're right. There are now not just dispersed teams in a domestic environment, but globally dispersed teams that also have to deal with things like time zone differences um, as well on top of everything else that's happening. So I guess my question, my follow-up question to that is if there's one thing that, you know, remote or virtual teams could do or benefit from more of? Would you say that it's just more communication as it relates to all of this stuff? Or do you think that the intervention looks a little bit different? From a very generic prescription, I think um, almost all the times more communication helps. Mm -hmm. And yet we also know that uh, most people's days are stacked up with back-to-back -back meetings and um, that there's quite often, it just doesn't seem like there's enough time for more communication. And when we try to take that time, it actually creates a little bit of a, a backlash. We don't have time to sit here and talk about how we work as a team you know, quite often here. But if I look inside the data, if you go back to the 16 elements in our team elements, uh, if, I, if I look at the teams we've worked with in the last year or so, um, we've found an amazing number of teams that are struggling because of the lack of clear roles and responsibilities. Um, and, and I've seen enough data, uh, I think, to, to have some confidence around generalizing this. It's, mm -hmm. I'm not going to say you have to have it before all other things. I'm not saying it will fix every problem you ever had. But what we're seeing is that organizations are changing so quickly. They change structure. Right? They go through M&A. They go from a siloed to a very matrix structure. They go to work squads and work teams and cross Because organizations are changing so quickly, the stressors for that are manifested in the teams. Um, and so people get into teams and they're like, so I don't, a new person from marketing, um, do they know what their job is on this team? I don't even know their name. <laughs> and the lack of clarity around roles and responsibilities is one of the, the, the primal sources for conflict inside of teams because we end up with so many situations where you make some assumption, hey, Ben's doing this, or I make some assumption, Aubrey's responsible for that, or that we all have some shared responsibility for a particular outcome. And none of it ever seems to get documented or validated or aligned or agreed or debated. Um, and we have found our way to float through on teams, particularly global teams. I think this is, this is more true than anywhere else, where we just don't know. And I think taking the time to slow down uh, and go through some validation of the very basics. Who's on the team? Why are they here? What are they supposed to do? Is this right? Can we count on each other for this? Um, getting the basics of the blocking and tackling right, um, I think is, a, is an important thing for global teams and all teams. 
Yeah, I, I think I would agree with you. And actually, the research that we produced echoed this as well, that of the key challenges facing any team, 90% of folks said it's a lack of clearly defined roles and responsibilities for team members, and 85% said ineffective communication among team members about some of those um, key things that they need to know. So it can only benefit us to have more communication as it relates to this, and I think that becomes increasingly um, needed when we look at just the pace of how frequently organizations are shifting and going through acquisitions and changing internally or reorganizing, et cetera. Um, so I think that the, the need is there. Now we just kind of have to implement and do some of this stuff. Yeah, great. And, and I love HCI research. It's so clear. Um, and it's also so good to um, corroborate uh, with you also that things that you're seeing and that we're seeing um, are aligned. And and here's the great thing, put on those goggles and see it. Now the question is simply, is that true in my team? And if so, what can we do about it? Exactly. And so that's a, that's a great lead in as well, because when you look and speak with people who work within HR and other practitioners in this space, what are some of the practical tips that you suggest they can do to help their teams become more effective, both by, you know, building teams that are going to be more effective and also helping teams that are already in existence be more effective? The first one never goes over well, but I'll start with it, which is I think to some degree we have to put the oxygen mask on ourselves first. Um, I, I think if we could get HR teams working really well together um, and role model for the rest of the organization how this works and the data we have that shows that our HR teams are effective, um, that we show that we're investing in and working on it, um, I just think it carries so much moral weight, so much, um, hey, we're doing this, and actually it's kind of fun. You should too, type of thing. And so I think looking at ourselves first, getting our our own houses a bit in order is a wonderful thing to do. That said, of course, we know everybody believes their own team is just fine and working just well and maybe has some rough spots, uh, and that could be. I'll go back to what percentage of your teams are effective or highly effective, and if the answer is somehow less than 90%, there's probably some work we can do. But I think really practical things, you know, if you put on your goggles and you can begin to look at these teams very individually, um, we're, I think we're always so tempted to generalize, quote, all the teams over there in sales struggle with fill in the blank. You know, we know that's not true. There, there, are, there is no generalization like that that is, is true. You could say most or many or some, but I doubt it's all. And so to begin to see these teams individually with their unique constellations and their unique needs, as, as those of us in support or helper functions, I think that's really important. I mean, we have to slow down to be able to do that and use a certain language around that. Um, I think asking those questions that we asked before, like, hey, how's your team? How's the team doing? Mm -hmm. That really brings people to a place of grounding. Oh, we're going to talk about my team, this team. Uh, and then probing what we can do to help. I, I think the last thing is most of the impact in teams comes about when they change habits, when they make very small changes. When, um, as professionals, we help teams make really pragmatic, it doesn't have to be, you know, Nobel Prize winning type of HR work. It's more like, wow, we helped that team get a little bit better at conflict resolution. We helped that team create a shared vision. We found some really cool tools that helped that team um, 
improve their desired climate. Um, and small changes uh, almost always are contagious. And so as we improve any one of these 16 elements, quite often we'll see parallel improvements in other things. So if we work on trust and we're not at all attending to something like conflict resolution, we'll quite often see trust, I'm sorry, conflict resolution get better because we've just been working on trust. And I think noting the positive, seeing the things that are changing, acknowledging it, highlighting it, talking about it, asking ourselves, why are these things getting better? How can we do more of that? Um, it's the power of the well-placed question. Um, it's the, the contagion of noting things are getting better. Let's figure out why and how we might be able to do more. It's validating the hard effort that leaders and team members are putting in. Um, in the end, everybody's responsible for their own team. So we can't own that for them. But I think there's a whole set of things, very pragmatic, that we can do to be their prime cheerleaders, to be people who want to hold hope with them and create momentum with them. Um, and I think sometimes just the, the well-placed conversation is the place to start. Great. That's a wonderful way to wrap up our content for today. And I love the idea of, you know, HR really should be the role model as it pertains to so many of this stuff that we talk about. But, you know, modeling and working in effective teams that support each other, that build trust with one another. Um, like you said, it's, it's oftentimes those subtle changes that have the biggest impact at the end of the day. And so if we can kind of quietly in our realm of HR start to adopt these behaviors, I think that over time we'll see a much better and bigger impact to the rest of the organization. I agree. I couldn't have said it better. I think that's the goal. That's, that's the passion. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Bennett, for taking the time to join us to talk about this very important topic in HR today. Um, if you are interested to learn more about Bennett and Team Elements, please visit teamelements.com. I also want to thank all of our HCI learners for tuning in today. We hope that you'll subscribe to our Nine to Thrive HR podcast, including this new deep dive series, which is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher Smart Radio, or our YouTube channel, HCI Talent, for instant access to new episodes. And as always, if you're interested in learning more about what HCI is working on and hearing about some new topics and trends in the strategic talent management space, please visit us at hci.org. Thanks so much, everyone. Have a great rest of your day.